Screen Talk is available on iTunes. You can subscribe there and leave a review to let us know what you think. You can also share feedback with us on Twitter. I'm at Eric Cohn, and Ann Thompson is at AK Stanwick. Welcome to Screen Talk, IndieWire's weekly podcast. I'm Eric Cohn, the chief film critic, and seated across from me for the very first time in our podcast history is my friendly sparring partner, Ann Thompson, because we're both at the Toronto International Film Festival and very excited to be here, also very exhausted, and we need to unload our brains a little bit to talk about all the things we've been processing for the last few days. Knowing that we don't have any brain cells left. Yeah, I mean, I'm sort of staring out into the distance and trying to uh, comprehend everything that's happened over the past week and realizing that it's been a lot, but in my mind, I feel like I'm still kind of... Uh, adjusting to where I am and, and what just happened over the last couple of weeks. You know, we were in Telluride a week ago and uh, seeing a whole bunch of stuff there, and, and that was one dense little experience, and we had a little break in between. But in Toronto, there's a whole bunch more stuff that comes along. And it, one of the things that's interesting to me is that whereas in Telluride we can really focus on, you know, a couple of new fall season movies, some other kind of discoveries with Toronto, it's like every which way. Although I would say that it seems like the Oscar-y conversation here is not quite what it has been in previous years. It seems like a quieter year, wouldn't you say that? I would say that part of what has happened here is that everybody recognizes that Toronto is uh, an acquisitions film festival, and there have been some acquisitions like the Chris Rock film, Top 5, which went for $12.5 million uh, to Paramount. Uh, A24 picked up the Noah Baumbach uh, for a much smaller figure. Um, but but the uh, acquisitions is one thing, and it's sort of the fall launch with a lot of... Um, we're nearby a kitchen. I'm sorry. We're launch. on the front lines. People understand. Yeah, we're on, there's a fall launch of, of all these big, uh, you know, movies. And so the Oscar conversation, I have a feeling that one of the reasons why Toronto took the stance that they did was that they were sort of recognizing that the Oscar conversation had moved to Telluride and to New York and even to Venice. And, and that there, there's only really, I mean, what happened in the old-fashioned way is that the imitation game got started at Telluride, came here, amplified, confirmed, very strong Oscar contender. Right, or 12 Years a Slave last year. Gravity know. last year. Mm-hmm. So, so what you have, Argo, the year before that, what you have this time is a new movie, Theory of Everything, which is working title, universal, focus features, that's the one that's been added to the list, but what's so strange is that Imitation Game and Theory of Everything are so close to Right, each other. they're both biopics about these tortured geniuses, and one of the things that's interesting about that is that, it, that neither of them strike me as major Oscar movies. I mean, certainly they're oh, in the they're race. they're soft lobs. They're, they're perfect. Soft they're lobs. period. But they're, they're, they're about uh, heroic figures, either in science or, or in war play, um, and and they post really f- incredible performances. For sure, the, and, 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 and they're tearjerkers. But but I think that if you compare that to something like Birdman, which is this major, you know, cinematic experience, you know, it's a lower, last year with 12 Years a Slave, which just felt like kind of a, this this phenomenon of sorts. I mean, these these other movies are just, they're smaller, and they're very traditional, and so they don't feel surprising in the same way. So the race is less You're exciting. Like a critic here, Eric. Shocking. If I may be so bold, 
And there's a difference between what critics think and what the Academy thinks. And right. What's going to happen is that Birdman is going to be the favorite of the critics, and I think that they will be raving about him, that film. And it's my favorite. I love Birdman. It's extraordinary, and because it's new and we've never seen it before, the guy took Inaritu took an amazing risk. Right. But um, this is more like these two films are more like The King's Speech. Which film won? Social Network or The King's Speech? Yeah, I hear what you're saying. Although the fact that it's in the race at all can't be discounted. And, and what I think is, is valuable here is, is to re- recognize, at least, that there, there's a certain kind of disconnect to some degree between what's interesting about this year's Oscar race and what, the ma- what seems to be happening with the major contenders, which is that it may be much more conservative in the sense that if we're going to be talking about the Stephen Hawking doc versus the Alan Turing... Or the Stephen Not Hawking, a doc, uh, right. Uh, you know, kind of tear-dricker biopic yeah. versus the Alan Turing biopic, you know, for the next few months, the conversation is not going to be that complicated in the way that it will be around something like Birdman, which has to do with show business, it has to do with, you know, sophisticated direction and so forth. Um, but it, I guess one, one takeaway, though, is that the race has not significantly advanced since Toronto started. We haven't seen too much else that really changed the equation. I mean, well, Wild got a little more momentum. Uh, Wild played well here. Uh, I think it's actually a crowd pleaser that could do very well. And, and Cheryl Strayed and the book have enormous following so uh, among men and women. So I think Wild um, uh, should, should advance. And then the next... Um, there's a movie called Nightcrawler, which uh, I loved and has played very, very well here. Very much of a genre film, but it's about something. It's Nightcrawler about is super cool, and the description that people have, have put out there of sort of taxi driver meets network is totally accurate. That's right, and, 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 and it's, 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 it's portraying a phenomenon, you know, this sort of awful, uh, bloody, sanguine, you know, ambulance-chasing hideosity of, of local uh, network news, which is apparently not inaccurate. And so you have Jake Gyllenhaal creating this character that is comparable to Travis Bickle in a weird yeah, way. Yeah, and it's it's his first, I think, real performance. I mean, you people say Brokeback Mountain was a major achievement Which for him. Which he got a nomination and, yeah, for. But it was a much more muted turn. I mean, this is like full-on monstrosity to the point where he's almost like this abstract presence. I mean, there's no real backstory for the guy. He's just this twisted kind of figure, you know, chasing every new story and trying to advance his role, and you don't really know what he's capable of. And it's interesting so. to compare that. I mean, the point I wanted to make is that if this movie gets the reviews that it might get, if it does well with the box office, all these things have to happen. Yeah. If, 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 you know, if, if Open Road, you know, does everything right, right, maybe Jake could get a nomination. But that's a very long if, and it's a very competitive category. Right. I, I mean, it seems more like, again, it's, it's the critical favorite type of a thing and in this particular year it's, it's a it's a tough one more likely it seems is St. Vincent which I saw uh, early in the festival another very sentimental uh, tearjerker of sorts uh, with Bill Murray but it's Bill Murray doing his first really interesting performance in a long time as this alcoholic Brooklynite who bonds with the young boy who moves in next door. Um, Very traditional in certain ways, but it works for what it is. Um, it's not really my kind of movie, but I can tell. It hasn't gotten that good reviews, though. It doesn't feel like a, a critic's picture at all. Oh, so now the critics matter from the Oscar race. It has to be both. Okay. Interesting, because I think that with St. Vincent, 
it's it's something of an interesting dark horse because you know it's a Weinstein company which also has Imitation Game and you guess know, which horse they're going to put their money presumably on. presumably Especially they're going to they're opening this one St. Vincent much earlier right so they've got Benedict, Benedict Cumberbatch but it's almost like Bill Murray is the insurance just in case something goes awry um, what I thought was interesting was to compare Nightcrawler which is also about a guy under economic duress who's trying to just survive with uh, 99 Homes, the, the Barani film. I mean, Barani's film with uh, Andrew Garfield and Michael Shannon, but, I mean, that movie still doesn't have distribution. It's, it's, it's very well We're not acted. talking Oscars. We're talking thematic. Here. Okay. Yeah, okay, we can go beyond that. I mean, I think 99 Homes, it's an interesting point of comparison. That movie's a little bit more shrill in terms of, like, the message. Yeah. It's it's like it's expositional. It's, it's like you're reading a script. You're right. hearing the script being read by the actors. Yeah, it's it's a it's an op-ed about the housing crisis right. five years too late. I agree. Which is unfortunate because, because I the think actors are good. The actors are very good, but you know it's been a really interesting year for performances outside of the kind of Oscar discussion. Phoenix, which is Christian Petzold's follow-up to Barbara, uh, again Nina with Haas Nina again, Haas. Who we love. His muse is is fantastic. I mean, it's it's this kind of minimalist Holocaust drama about a woman who emerges scarred from the concentration camps, has plastic surgery, and finds her husband who doesn't recognize her and gets her to pretend she's his presumably deceased wife so he can get her inheritance. Um, and so that that scenario is is quite it's, it's it's almost like vertigo or something. I mean, it's very classical in terms of its structure and, and the way that it it unfolds. But it's her performance is is remarkable. I mean, I was just blown away by each shot because she never gets some kind of tell-all monologue. It's everything is internalized. So I she really hope that one gets out. In um, most wanted man. That's right. She's one of the the other spies. And, sort of uh, the romantic figure. Yeah. In so that. this is a, a much deeper role. Um, and then there's also Eden, which is Mia Hansen Love's film about the French discotheque uh, scene, which is a very muted uh, gentle film uh, with uh, some really interesting performances including a, a small role uh, by Greta Gerwig, but for the most part it's it's kind of lesser known French uh, actors and, and uh, it's it's a movie that in spite of the fact that it deals with very loud crazy party music is, is actually more about like sort of the personal connection to that scene and I thought that was a, a really nice sort of discovery that I hope gets out there and will be at New York Film Festival. One of the interesting parallels that I saw also, if you think about Birdman, which is um, a, you know, Anna Ritu is sort of working out some of his own issues through his main character, Michael Keaton, as right. an artist who's tortured and looking for cred and so on, or some kind of uh, reclamation. Um, the other movie like that is Baumbach's While We're Young, sure. Neil Baumbach. And his artist surrogate is played by Ben Stiller, yeah. who is, of course, in Greenberg. And he's playing a documentary filmmaker. Right. And apparently um, his his protege, uh, played by very well, I liked him a lot, Adam Driver, plays this, this young, up-and-coming, sort of... Uh, um, uh, Opportunistic. Uh, you can call him a hipster. It's okay because that's With what the he's hats going and for. Everything. It's a pose. But but he and 
but it's all based on Joe Swanberg, apparently. Is that true? Well, yes, that actually isn't that surprising, is a, given that Baumbach produced one of Swanberg's films. That's and, it. Yeah, that's it. And that's so, fascinating. And so he, he's basically working out all these issues, but I found myself feeling more sympathy for the supposed villain of the piece uh, than yeah. what I did for the protagonist. Well, that's not surprising with a Baumbach film, where the protagonist himself is less sympathetic than he is just sort of like lost in his own mind. Although I will say, while we're young, it's interesting because it's his most broadly accessible comedy. I mean, in spite of the fact that there is some insidery New Yorky stuff in it, it, it does. The laughs, I think, are more sort of about things that you see in you know Judd Apatow movies. You know, I like this is for that's gonna play. It, well, I mean, it's interesting. You know, I mean, it's possible it's that A twenty four spent a lot of money, but yeah, I mean, it, personally, the the director who kind of stepped up to the plate and had a track record who I was really happy to see perform well was uh, Hal Hartley who brought Ned Rifle here which is the conclusion of a trilogy that started with Henry Fool although he didn't really map it out as a trilogy back then but it was Henry Fool Fagrim Fagrim being the follow-up, focused on the Parker Posey character, who winds up in jail at the end of that movie. This one picks up and focuses on her son, uh, kind of on this war path to track down his terrible father, Henry, and extract uh, revenge uh, for the situation that he's caused for his family. And he's, he's now this religious fundamentalist Christian. So the way that Fagrim dealt with post-9-11 anxieties and Henry Fool kind of poked fun at, you know, literary, stuck-up literary intellectual types, this one really deals with um, religious extremism in a really funny, deadpan way. And I think it's one of his best movies in a really long time. It's got a great performance by Aubrey Plaza as this uh, doctorate student who's, who's obsessed with the family, almost like a, a Hartley fangirl of sorts. It's got this meta quality to it that really worked for me. So I, I hope that movie gets out there. I mean, certainly it's it's not for everybody. Hardly style isn't for everybody, but neither is Baumbach, neither is Wes Anderson. And you know, to me, it's it's a movie that will find its audience because it's it's a very particular audience that we already know exists. Well, the other um, movie that uh, while we're young uh, seems to sort of go up against is Men, Women, and and uh, ch- Children. You know, the the Jason Reitman film. Yes. And uh, I, I really um, liked that better than mm. the bound back. But it seems to be a divisive response. Yeah, I hated it. it. <laughs> I know. I, I, and, and Owen Gleiberman loved it. And, and it's a portrait of our time. I mean, there's a lot of, he, he does a lot of floating, um, you know, uh, text boxes and things like that. It's, it's, a lot about, uh, it's a lot about how we all communicate and how relationships are, are defined sure. by, by the new technology. It's, it's about that. It's also some, a generation gap. Yeah, it's about that in some very obvious, transparent ways. I mean, the movie repeatedly cuts away to CGI of the Voyager spacecraft to remind us all of how insignificant all our problems were, which just reminded me how insignificant the movie was. So. Oh, I didn't have that reaction at all. The, the, the blue dot Oof. is something the pale blue we dot. all should sure. keep in mind. It was a great concept that Carl Sagan <laughs> came up with, but in the context of these teenage you know lives. What it is? I like the way that Jason takes chances, that he is a filmmaker who isn't afraid to just put his heart on his sleeve and yeah. take an experimental approach, just like Inaritu in his own way. I, it, this is not a, 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 a safe play. This is not something that, that everybody is, is going to embrace, and I, I applaud him for that. Well, I don't know. I mean, it's a safer play than his last movie to some degree, which was like three people in a room in a hostage situation. I mean, I, I felt like he which was trying I to make... Which I liked also, yeah. the better than I mean, most. Labor Day, you know, it, 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 I think it, it got 
you know, people were harder on it than they maybe should have been, but this one is asking for it more. It's more of, I, I felt like it was more of an attempt to do an American Beauty style kind of take on, you know, where, what is suburban life today and so forth. And, you know, there, there's always been a sort of conservative streak to his filmmaking. He's a professed libertarian. And, you know, the, the idea of kind of sympathizing with the 1% and up in the air was sort of the, the height of that or the pinnacle of that. But in this one, it, it seems almost like, the, especially towards the end of the film, which I won't spoil because I'm sure people are eager to see it now, but uh, it seems like it's sort of saying that, you know, we should retreat from our problems and, and sort of the, the way that our digital lives expose us more is, is something that, that means that it's okay to just kind of accept, uh, you know, that we're all unhappy and just kind it's of not let what the I got from go it at all. He absolutely celebrates the young couple who are actually spending real time with each other, having a real romance, being able to express real feelings. He's celebrating that. He's anti-technology in his way. In this right, movie. which is why I'm saying it's kind of conservative in, in a certain sense. That I agree with. Um, but... You know, it'll be interesting to see how a movie like that kind of gets beyond the stigma that Toronto is now placed in front of it. It doesn't strike me as an awards movie in any Not particular way. Yeah, never so was. it's got other kinds of ways that it can get out into the world. So one of the uh, movies that's um, for sale here, uh, another uh, sort of female-directed movie, uh, along with is, is *The Keeping Room*, which uh, well, it's actually it's not directed by a woman. No, it's written but by it's a written by a woman and very much driven by uh, a lead performance, uh, Britt Marling, in a very active role. It's set in the Civil War. It's taking an alternative look at what the women left behind right. and how they cope with the ravages and it's it's sort of ahead of Sherman's march it's it's the idea that the soldiers are coming through raping and pillaging and right. behaving badly all around and the women have to defend themselves with guns right. with wile with the being smart and Britt Marling is as good as she's ever been I don't I know, I've never a, seen her give a performance like this It's a great like performance this. but the real discovery is Muno Taru who plays the slave of the of this farm where these three women are are housed up defending themselves from Yankee scouts right after the civil war because she's the one who's sort of already in this ostracized position whereas these As other women right these other women are adjusting to it and so she becomes sort of the voice of authority on their situation because she's already familiar with it well it some levels degree. the play exactly and i think so there's that a very element. memorable line which i will not repeat here, uh, using the N-word, which is that basically they all yeah. become the same thing. Yeah, and it's fascinating. I mean, this was a, a screenplay that was on the blacklist for obvious reasons, and what I said in my review was that, you know, sometimes the, when a blacklist screenplay gets produced, you can see why it was on there, because the ideas are original, even if the film doesn't work. In this case, I think the film works because it, it reflects these bigger ideas about gender, race, and, and just sort of the march of time in really interesting ways, but it doesn't, it doesn't overplay them. You know, you don't feel like movies kind of trying to force, like, remind you that it's, it's got this feminist, you know, vision or something. It's just a very pared-down, you know, peck and posh Western with a terrific finale. So, yeah, I mean, it, the reactions have been kind of all across the board, but I'm glad that we agree about this one. I I'm hope glad it gets we out do, there. too, because I feel very strongly about another film I really liked uh, from a woman director this time. Suzanne Beer has gone back to Denmark. She's gone back to working with her great collaborator on Open Hearts and some of her other uh, brothers and some of her other really good movies. Um, I prefer the films that she does in Denmark with um, Anders Thomas Jensen. Yeah. And uh, this one is another winner. It's it's called Second Chance, and it stars Nicholas Nicolaj Costovaldo, who is the star, one of the stars of Game of Thrones. And it's a very intimate, as you can imagine, very uh, delicate 
uh, drama that explores what happens when a cop comes across um, a a, a drug-riddled situation where a baby is being neglected, and then in his own home, he's having to deal with a new baby and crying and screaming and a very unhappy, sort of depressed wife. And these parallels create a situation where he actually ends up kidnapping the baby. Wow. And and it, did he do the right thing to save that baby to from this terrible uh, family that he might be growing up with? Or, or is he wrong to right. make those assumptions? And, and the movie digs into all of this in a really cool way, and I, I hope... Uh, people get to see it. I'll get around to it by the end of the week. It seems like just hearing about that and talking about Phoenix before, like, there's a lot of interesting movies that play with genre in different ways, The Keeping Room as well. Uh, I saw two Midnight films that that also kind of did that. There was Kevin Smith film Tusk, which is completely insane, um, about a man who is forced into a transformation uh, as a walrus. Uh, But it's it's not just uh, pure shock value. Kevin Smith is still an interesting filmmaker and so people want to look out for that one which A24 is actually releasing relatively soon um, and uh, the other film I saw in the midnight section was Big Game where Samuel L. Jackson plays uh, the President of the United States marooned in the Finnish countryside with a 12 year old survivalist escaping terrorists and it's a lot of fun as you might imagine snakes on a plane-ish camp uh, but it also feels like the kind of you know more exciting studio blockbusters that were made a while back, like the cliffhanger type of things, you know, where it's really like the premise really drives it home. Uh, so it's been an interesting year in that sense, a lot of variety. Yeah, some of the movies that didn't seem to play very well here include uh, The Reach, which is a Michael Douglas film, and mm-hmm. I sell to somebody because it's got that sort of... Um, he's, he, he, it's basically set in the desert, and this... Um, uh, Jeremy um, Irvine, who is in War Horse, is playing a tracker. He's got mm. an American accent in the desert. Who's go- who, and, and this guy wants to. He's a rich guy who wants to hunt game, mm. um, and and he's using his money to get away with uh, breaking the law and flouting yeah. everything. And it ends up being a sort of dangerous game situation where the the hunter uh, kills somebody by accident and doesn't want anybody to know mm. about it, and ends up chasing and tracking with all of his fans fancy equipment and all of his uh, uh, fancy car and everything. He's got the water, he's got the food, he's got everything, and the yeah. poor guy's naked running through the desert. And wow. it's, it's a cat so and game. it's got nudity, it's got Michael Douglas, and it's got a genre. I think It'll he's do got really a well in VOD. <laughs> he's got oh, okay. a And then the, um, the other movie that didn't really... The Fox Searchlight has a film here called The Drop, which uh, stars Tom Hardy, who I love in anything. I'll watch him do the phone book. But it's one of those movies where where you end up with too many players from the director to Hardy to Matthias Schweinartz um, to uh, Nomi Rapaz. Everybody's supposedly in Brooklyn. Right. Nomi Rapaz is, is Scandinavian. Uh, you know, obviously she's the star of, of the uh, the original. <laughs> the girl's drawing tattoo? Thank you. Yeah, that and old then, thing. And then, that old thing. And then, um, and then Tom Hardy. And so they're, they're doing their accents perfectly well, but in right. the end you end up with Euro Pudding. 
Right. Even if James Gandolfini is in it. Well, so that's a movie that's actually opening on Friday, so by the time people listen to this, they can go see it for themselves just for the sheer, you know, kind of value of seeing James Gandolfini's last performance. There's plenty of other movies here that, you know, we just don't know when we're going to have a chance to engage with them again, including The Keeping Room. I want to plug one documentary just in case uh, TIFF's uh, veteran doc programmer Tom Powers listens to this and and gives us a hard time, which is Roger Waters' The Wall, uh, co-directed by Roger Waters, and it's... uh, partly a concert film in which uh, Waters performs The Wall with this amazing set piece in, in, in a huge crowd in France, but it also cuts between that and a very artfully shown uh, visit that he pays to the grave sites of, of his grandfather and his father who were both killed in action in the two world wars, and and it really manages to kind of like deepen the the themes of the wall in ways I, I, I didn't expect it to. So that's one that's definitely worth looking out for. Um, I don't know if there are any other documentaries that I can really plug right now, aside from the ones that we talked about at Telluride. So. But the other thing that happens here in Toronto, you know, you go over to the uh, Scotiabank Theatre and, and you get in line, you know, and you hang out and you ask everybody that you see what they like. I mean, I'm sorry that I missed Pawn Sacrifice, which um, Ed Zwick directed, which has gotten some really good word. Um, I'm sorry that I didn't see The Cobbler, Tom McCarthy's film. I'm not so sorry, based on word of mouth. It's got terrible word of mouth, but I really want to see what he did. It sounds like an experiment. It may have gone wrong, but sometimes experiments are exciting. Right. Well, speaking of getting in line in the Scotiabank Theater, we've we got go. a one thirty screening. Oh, we better get going. So we better we have do to this. see the Chris Rock film because that's the the big the big hit of the festival, really. Although that one did get distribution, so you'll see it too. <laughs> On that note, thanks, Anne. Thank you, Eric. Oh,